comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. It's where we give you the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing that you desperately crave. People are yearning. They're, yearning. they're pining even slow. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm pretty sure fire season has been so bad in California because we haven't been putting out enough Free Money Podcasts. A lot of people have been asking me that. Yeah, uh, they're yep. like, look, do you feel you're partially responsible for what's going on? <laughs> and uh, my answer is no, I, I don't. Yeah, I yep, yep, yep. yeah. I mean, because that would be... This takes oh. 10 or 15 minutes to prepare for this show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, so, time is valuable. You know, we're out yeah. here... Um, you know, I gotta, I gotta level up in Mario tennis, you know, you're, you know, <laughs> you got your stuff to do. I got some tower defense games. I'm really <laughs> working hard <laughs> <on> that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this is the markets episode. What's that? Fun. Yeah. Right. This is good. Yeah. This I'm really excited. Good. You know why? Time. I'll tell you why I was so excited about the markets episode. For those of us that have like been trying to fix the finance, you know, like me and you, Sloan, mm-hmm. we're trying mm-hmm. to fix the finance. Uh, the ability that we could like design a new market infrastructure to fix things is like yeah. really rules. exciting. Totally rules. You know, like we're here on this podcast kind of trying to fix pension funds or like make pension funds cool and think about how we can get these pension funds to be better and to go navigate what are pretty dysfunctional markets that yeah. are like chaotic um, but imagine if instead of having to like turn public pension funds into Navy SEALs, we could just make the markets less crazy and wow. fairer. That's like, right? just change the problem, right? That, that's a great, you know, way of inverting it, you know, like yeah. to, to get pension, there's so many nested reforms that need to happen on the pension fund side. You know, Brutal. you got to build a governance model. You got to like educate the boards. You got to do all, I mean, it's a whiz bang stuff. Um, but, and yeah, the markets are pretty new. That's one of the things yeah. that I think is really remarkable to me. Like I, I've been reading this biography, uh, written by Jim Grant, who's like forgotten more about finance than <laughs> anybody ever knows. Um, you know, the publisher of Grant's interest rate observer, but of Ber- Bernard Brook, who's this like famous trader, um, born in 1870, died in 1965. And he sort of lived through the modernization of markets. Right. Wow. Um, so like in the beginning of the book, you know, we're sort of sitting here and like, they don't really have governance standards yet. The New York Stock Exchange is still sort of coming up with them, right? Oh, really? In like the huh. 1890s and change. Like, so that there's not yeah. like a, a disclosure standard associated with being listed on, on, on a public exchange. So what like, website 19- would you go to back then to... <laughs> just joking, just joking. Yeah, you just sort of like... I, I mean, I think a, 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 a boy sitting on a corner would like wave the annual reports around and be like, extra, extra, read all about it. And just see the ticker tape. <laughs> no, but it, it's, such a, it's such a crazy thing. Like they... I mean, so when they actually... When the New York Stock Exchange built their building on Broad Street, they actually took the disclosure standards and put them in the cornerstone. Um. Wow. You know, like, so they see themselves, like they see the exchange as so much this like champion of, you know, kind of good behavior, good corporate behavior. If only they could see where it's come. But like, that's so funny that like, that you know, that's the foundation. And it's like, literally, like quite literally, it is in the foundation of the stock exchange, the transparency (laughs) standard, right? Yep. (laughs) But like, and yet here we are. I think there's probably like only 14 people in the country that would say they're happy with the financial services industry. And those are like 14 billionaires at hedge funds or something. Oh, yeah. Um, 
and and I think you know to come back to like the topic of this, like what are the innovations? I think one of the innovations that I was so excited about, which I think is kind of petered out a bit, unless you tell me otherwise, is the whole crypto and blockchain concept mm. as like, hey, this is a way we could fundamentally reform the foundations of moving money in capitalism. You know, the it, the idea is you connect with your peers directly. Um, you don't necessarily need an in quotes trusted intermediary. Yep. Um, those trusted intermediaries don't have to reserve capital. You know, there's much more transparency, like all these things that go into making the capital move around could have been reformed through, um, you know, blockchain and crypto worlds. Um, but it never worked. Yeah. At least it hasn't worked yet. I, I, so, I think I, I would add the, the caveat that it's worked for plenty of illegal things. Um, <laughs> so like, and for like random dudes to, to like become so rich and then have random license plates that talk about getting pond or no, what is it? Pwned. Pwned. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I actually, I went on the dark web, um, a little bit ago and I, I was sort of like poking around to see what might be on there. And it turns out you can buy uh, material non-public information on the dark web in an Amazon-like marketplace uh, with with cryptocurrency. You know, with so like so that that's where that leg of innovation is taken. So up. there's a market. <laughs> what are the markets we're here? To yeah, exactly. On. Anything <laughs> like and like imagine but, crypto could have reduced fees and like you know yep. re- rendered asset management sane and targeted at value add rather than extracting rents and mispricings and all the rest. Ugh. I mean, yeah, well, and you know, the thing too is the existing exchange could have done that too, right? I mean, the the person who runs Intercontinental Exchange is kind of notable these days for being married to Kelly Loeffler, the senator who insider traded COVID information. Uh, (laughs) But she was also doing a crypto exchange, right? Wasn't that? Oh, that's right. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow, 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 wow. Yeah, yeah, she did. She did insider trade the COVID intelligence (laughs) briefing. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, so the bar seems like it's on the floor, but the potential seems like it's way up in the sky. Yeah. You know? um, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Tell me more about the, this guy from the 1800s who solved all our problems and or <laughs> almost solved all our problems. Well, I, you know, I think the thing about Bernard Baruch that's like kind of interesting about him is he kept making and losing, uh, you know, quazillions of, uh, of, uh, of dollars, right? I think he's awesome. made and lost three fortunes. But like, he he had this very strong belief that you couldn't be you couldn't work both on your own behalf and for your clients. So if you were going to speculate in the mm. market, you had to be a principal. Um, mm. You know, so it's, he's kind of old timey in all these really cute ways. I um, like that. Yeah, you know, and but he, he's also super problematic. Like he totally endowed the Daughters of the Confederacy. Oh, <laughs> I mean, he was born in South Carolina, <laughs> um, born in 1870. You know, was, yep. yeah, we can do it. But like, I I, I think that the ambitions, the goals, the, the standards that, you know, were sort of in those like founding principles of the stock exchange are sort of alive today, right? Yeah, they are alive today. At least they're being reconsidered today as of last week. Yeah. Uh, the, oh yeah, that's right. I heard about this new stock exchange. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, like the crazy thing is, I think one of the most, um, foundational institutions obviously in markets are these stock exchange where companies mm-hmm. go public they sell their they sell their stocks to the public and the companies that list there have to meet certain requirements and so 
you know, the, the innovation with the New York stock exchange, it sounds like they were really focused on transparency, mm-hmm. but it hasn't been enough. Yep. Um, definitely hasn't been enough. And so here we are, we just had uh, a new stock exchange launch. There's been a few stock exchanges to launch in the last little while, but I think this is the first one that's going to seek company listings. Yeah. Yeah. The other one was, I think, focused on cost of trading. The long-term yeah. stock exchange, which I mean, I guess well, this is kind of the unofficial long-term stock exchange podcast at this point. <laughs> Basically. Uh, you know, we had Gene yeah. Rogers on. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I am a senior advisor. So, uh, oh, wow. Senior. The CEO of the long-term stock exchange, according to my LinkedIn profile. No big deal or anything. NBD. But and, and we're about to call the president of the long-term stock exchange. We are because we want to understand how these new markets launch and what they do and how they're going to avoid us having to think about pension funds. <laughs> um, and she's just going to solve our problems with a beautiful exchange. Just make Michelle us obsolete. Green. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't that, wouldn't that be good, right? What a great dream. We'll just shut. We'll just shut the podcast down. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Hi. You have actually. How are you? Sloan. We're doing great. How are you doing? Okay. Okay. Pretty good. Good. Well, we, you're uh, you're what we like to call quasi live on the uh, Free Money Podcast because we don't really like to edit that much. Um, so I'm trying not to swear is... too much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, swear. you can if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as the president of a regulated stock exchange, though, I would advise against it. Hey, uh, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in the same room as those IEX people, Ashby, but... <laughs> easy, easy. So we were just talking about the, how much we hope that these new stock exchanges can fix finance so that we don't have to fix pension funds, because fixing pension funds feels really hard. Um, and and fixing so, finance, that's easy. How hard can it be? Make it stock exchange might do it. So look, you're the president of the long-term stock exchange and you have a long history in exchanges. But question number one, um, who does the long-term stock exchange see as its customer? And how is that different from the other exchanges? Which is another way of saying, how is LTSE different from NICE or NASDAQ or any of the others? Yeah. So what we really tried to do was create a marketplace that has a different set of incentives and where companies can operate differently. And what I mean by that is we're really focused on long-term value creation. And in today's public markets, there's a lot of quarterly pressure. And so what we've tried to do is to create an atmosphere in which their incentives pushing against that quarterly pressure and really where the, the definition of success is more about the long-term and not about quarterly EPS. Um, and so what's different is the listing standards. We've mm. created a different set of listing standards because those are the rules by which companies you know, operate on an exchange. And so um, we've changed the listing standards, made those different. And they're different in one important way. We have a set of what we call the long-term listing standards, which are unique to our exchange. And those are really about companies sharing with their investors how they operate and how they operate for the long-term in, in a bunch of prescribed areas that they, that they address. 
Um, but in terms of who it's for, it's really for any company that is thinking about success in this long-term way and is thinking in a multi-stakeholder way. And um, companies can do a list here. So it can be a company that's already listed somewhere else. But really, any company that has kind of that idea that success should be measured over generations and decades rather than quarters. Well, you know, and are there... Oh, you go, Slon. You go. You, uh, go. you know, and I think of you guys as being really associated with, you know, I mean, like, we talk about companies as a sort of shareholder democracy, right? Where the people who hold the stock exercise, you know, a, uh, a vote. And like in the, in the traditional markets, that's kind of problematic because, you know, this, the folks who just bought the stock have the same weight as the folks who've owned it for years. And like the LTSE and this idea of tenure-based voting have been associated in the media a lot. I'm curious, is that something that you're actually doing? Um, and if not, why not? Yeah, so it's not a requirement. Um, we actually moved, and the reason you you see it in the media a lot is because there there were some earlier iterations of how we were going to approach all of this um, that, that did include a time-based voting plan. But as we got to our final version of the listing standards, we actually moved to a principles-based approach. And the reason for the principles-based approach was that we were finding companies had some really creative ideas about how to be long-term focused and how to engage better with their their stakeholders, including their long-term shareholders. And we really wanted to be encouraging that creativity in these different approaches. So the principles-based approach is, is broader. There is no requirement around time-based voting. There's no requirement around voting at all. Um, there is a requirement that the company talk about how it engages with its long-term shareholders. And that can be done in lots of different ways. So it's definitely not a requirement. Um, but the long-term stock exchange and LTSC, we actually have um, a set of, we're also a software company, so we have a set of tools. And one of the tools for companies that choose to use it does um, facilitate time-phase voting. So there is still that option for companies that want it, but it's not a requirement. So one of the, that's awesome to hear. And, and I think... When I hear you describe the listing standards, people might be hearing, gosh, those are constraints that, you know, um, hippies in California will love. But what about us <laughs> icy being capitalists? Um, you know, when we try to bring innovation into the world of pension funds, we have to operate with this very singular constraint. And that is that it improves performance on a risk-adjusted basis. And so I imagine, you know, everybody is sitting here asking like the the $100 trillion question, which is, will the LTSC drive higher performance over the long term? And if it doesn't, that's a problem. But if it does, then everybody will want to list. And so how do you think about that? Well, that is certainly the theory of the case. Um, yeah, we obviously <laughs> believe it will drive long-term value, you know, over the long-term. And, and there's a few reasons for that, you know, first of all, and, and you can talk about the academic side of this far better than I can. But first of all, I think to the extent that there has been academic work done in this space, you know, the preliminary results seem to point to long-term focus leading to better long-term results in, in different areas. We also have some promising results about the impact of having diversity on boards, the impact of, you know, being a stakeholder-focused company, those sorts of things. So I think there are pieces of this um, uh, that really tie together with different elements of outperformance. But if you just kind of take it up a level and think about it logically, and, and this is where, you know, all these different pieces kind of come together, if you're a company that is focused on 
this quarter's results, you are making choices that are about optimizing for this quarter. And if you are a company that is focused on success over decades and generations, you are making choices that are optimized for creating value over that longer term time horizon. And so, you know, when we look at some of the studies where um, companies are choosing to cut R&D funding or not innovating as much when they're short term focused or, you know, all sorts of implications of being short term focused that really end up hurting that long term performance, whether it's investing in your people, investing in innovation and research, um, or just in the day to day decision making, making the choice that creates great long-term value. If we can create a system where the folks in the system are in fact when faced with those choices and the way that their incentives push them are all aligned toward, no, don't make that short-term choice just to meet this quarter's numbers. And of course, we've seen tons of financial engineering where folks are mm-hmm. making those choices. But if we can change that incentive away from the financial engineering, away from the you know, overly focused on quarterly EPS so that the question that the managers are asking themselves is, how do I best optimize for long-term value creation? If that becomes what everyone is optimizing for, then you are going to get long-term value creation. And, you know, if you talk to folks who work in in public companies, most everyone that we talk to talks about this quarterly cadence. And even just freeing up the time and energy that is spent on that quarterly drumbeat of, you know, hitting our numbers, reporting on our numbers, have it, you still have to report. But if we can really change that focus, that's not what it's about and put all that energy toward long-term value creation, you're going to create more long-term value. That's what we believe. That makes total sense. I mean, like what what I'm hearing is like a new sort of paradigm where like, you know, we have this like short-term extractive way of thinking that so predominates on Wall Street where like, you know, starting in the 80s, you have to like t- steal the money out of the pension fund and uh, and take <laughs> over and, you know, lever up and pay yourself a huge dividend, which might work in the short term. Yeah. Um, I mean, so we've asked the $100 trillion question, which is, you know, is this going to out- make outperformance? Uh, you know, I guess I'll ask the, the one squillion dollar question, which is, in what way <laughs> is what you're doing also bad, right? Are there any downsides to listing on the long term stock exchange? Like, is it, is it less liquid? Or w- what's the catch? Yeah, so there's not a liquidity issue. And this is getting a little into the kind of weeds of the, the public marketplace. But um, there's a regulation, Reg NMS, which basically says the shares, no matter where they're listed, trade everywhere. And so mm. your listing venue doesn't determine your liquidity. Um, so there's no liquidity price that you're paying here um, for being listed with us. You know, what? what is um, you know, there, there is a cost and that cost is committing to operate in this, in this particular type of way, right? So it's not for every company. There are companies that don't want to commit to operating in a long-term focused way. Um, but we believe there's a lot of companies that really do. And if you look at things, you know, like the business roundtable letter or other pledges that companies have made saying that this is how they want to operate, it's, it's very hard right now to distinguish those that really mean it and really are operating in a different way from those who are just kind of, you know, this is the hot new thing and they're signing on to it. So this is really a way for companies that mean it and want to make the commitment and want to distinguish themselves to do that. But the flip side of that being, it actually requires a commitment. So um, so it, it does have meaning. It does have, have teeth. And so companies have to actually be willing to operate differently and, and to share with their investors differently. Whoa, 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 whoa. So are you telling me companies... 
are going to actually have to do what they say. I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe it when I see it. (laughs) I know. Crazy idea, right? (laughs) Oh, I mean, I think for those of us on the phone, we, we, we hear like the cost of committing to being awesome in the long run. Like that's just like differentiation, but you know, I think people need to realize that there really hasn't been that much of a cost for people saying, you know, like, Hey, we should take climate seriously, or we should take diversity seriously. And, and now there's, you know, going to be new rules around it, which I think is just super exciting. Um, the last question for you, we I know we've so got, <laughs> <laughs> the last question I've had for you, um, it sounds so good. And so my, my guess is there's going to be, um, you know, companies that might want to do a list that are already public. And, and yeah. I'm just like, for me, looking out at the world of companies, is it the companies that I hear talking about sustainability or those that have said they want to be carbon neutral by 2050 or that have B Corp certifications? Like, what are the types of companies that we should expect would list? And like, is, it, is that okay to have a dual listing? And how does that work? Yeah, yeah, sure. So absolutely. Um, we have set it up so that companies can do a list. And that's true for existing public companies that can do a list. It's also true for companies that are about to go public if they want to do a dual listing. Um, mm. So, it's, you know, we, we think that that is um, fine because really what we're trying to achieve is this change in focus and corporate behavior. And whether you, you primary list or dual list with us, you have to follow those standards. So, um, the dualist is no problem because uh, that means you're following our standards as well. So, so we yeah. do expect the initial, you know, the initial listings to be dualist things. Um, and um, in terms of how that works, um, you know, so you have a you have a primary exchange, which will be your incumbent exchange, and then okay. we will be the the secondary exchange. And is it basically? Oh, sorry, go for it, Sloan. Oh, no. Well, you know, I, I guess like one of the things that occurs to me to ask and that we weren't talking about, you know, kind of when we connected before was um, like, if you look at Intercontinental Exchange, roughly half of their revenue comes from data. Um, yeah. Right. And like, you know, I imagine, you know, just knowing this guy, Ashby, and where you guys are located, that there's a <laughs> data related plan at play. I wonder if you could elaborate on that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we we really look at this as a different type of exchange. And actually, I'm glad you brought up kind of the, the business model of exchanges, because one of the things that we really tried to do is move away from the business models of the current exchanges. Because if you look at where that revenue comes from, it's from data, of course, and it's from trading. And, mm. you know, the incentive for the exchange is volume, because volume drives revenue. For us, that's not the most important revenue source um, because we really see our customers as being the companies. And so, you know, in addition to the companies, obviously being on our exchange, we hope um, they also are customers for our tools, which align with all of the missions that, that the exchange is set up to do. And so really what, what we're doing is trying to approach this a bit differently. Um, so we have, uh, you know, as I, as I mentioned, we have a software company. We're really, um, about on the software side in particular that that individuals own their own data um and so that's how we treat our software um, mm. the software side of our house which is a, a separate company from the exchange and then on the exchange side what we're really hoping to get to is a place where you have a set of companies that are a providing different information so in terms of the information that will be available because they will be complying with these 
longer-term standards that require them to make different types of disclosures about the way they approach the long-term. There'll be a different set of information and data available, of course. Um, and then also, you know, very important to the point uh, Ashley raised earlier, where we assume that these companies are going to outperform. So, of course, we'll be tracking mm -hmm. that very closely. So, there'll be, there definitely will be new data points available because we have a different set of listing standards. And we think those will be really, um, you know, important to the long-term investors. And I also realized I didn't answer your last question, which was, who is this for? Um, and who is it for? Yeah, I'm going to go back. Um, do it. And do who it. is it for it's all good. is really... <laughs> so you don't even have to edit. I'll just do it now. Um, so that's really about... It's for companies that are thinking long-term, right? So it's for companies that are willing to be multi-stakeholder, are thinking about who are those stakeholders be besides just our shareholders. Our shareholders are certainly one stakeholder, but are thinking about you know their employees and their workers, their community, the diversity of their workforce. Um, so companies that are thinking that way, companies that are thinking about success over a much longer time horizon, so it could be companies from anywhere, you know, any geography, any sector, any industry. Some of them, you know, we certainly think, to your question about like a B Corp, we certainly think any B Corp that wants to go public would be, you know, a perfect match <laughs> for, for yeah. the long-term stock exchange because it's so aligned. But it's certainly not limited to those types of companies. It really is for any visionary company that is thinking about long-term success. It's so good. Last question before we, we let you go. I, since the announcement came out last week that the shares are now trading and like things are happening, it's real. I had a bunch of people ask me on, on the, um, the LinkedIn's, like, how do I support this? Like, what, what can I do? Like, can I direct my trades through LTSE? Question mark. Uh, or can I buy a t-shirt at a website? <laughs> you know, like, what do I do? Or do we, does well, like the I average love person the question. just, does the average person <laughs> love just the wait? Um, yeah, so I think it's a few different things. I mean, first of all, look, we really see ourselves as part of kind of this broader movement that's looking at capitalism as it exists right now and saying, you know what, actually, we need to make some changes here. So I think this idea that as an employee, as a customer, as a shareholder, as an investor, you know, whoever you are, the person on LinkedIn is asking this, in all of those different stakeholder roles, you can reinforce that idea, right? So it's, mm. it's, it's buying from the companies that actually behave this way. It's working for and pushing whatever company you do work for to behave this way. It's investing in ways that are cognizant about you know, multi-stakeholder and long-term behavior. And then, mm. yes, please, invest in the long-term long stock exchange. But even more so, you know, really encourage um, the companies that you invest in to explore listing. Because for us, it's less about the trading side. I mean, that's, that's part of being exchange, of course, but it's more about the companies listing with us because that's where the real commitment to change comes is when companies list with us. Perfect. And look, if you do have t-shirts you need to sell, we have a free money atelier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We have a, a very high-end uh, marketplace exclusive only to the listenership of free money. I think we oh, might well, have we stole will definitely get some t-shirts there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right, Michelle, sure, thank you I'm so going to go print it myself right now. <laughs> Heckity, yeah. Perfect.
<laughs> Perfect. Well, look, we really appreciate your candor and, and having fun with us on a Friday and uh, just explaining such a cool new initiative for those of us that geek out on freeing money from the shackles of short-termism. So yeah, have a good cool. weekend. And <laughs> It totally rules. Yeah. Thank and be safe. So much. And uh, we'll talk Thanks to you soon. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Oh man, that's it's so cool. You know, it's funny. I was I was actually talking to Gene Rogers earlier today about the panel oh we're doing at SoCap. Um, well, this right? really is your LTSC day, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's. I mean, we, we really are. It's the unofficial LTSC podcast. You know, well, it's uh, the fan club. It's, it's the, the fan, fan club, club basically. And, Eventually, I mean, we'll get Eric Reese on. <laughs> well, and you know, I guess we're gonna. You know, uh, you know, now's a good time to plug the SoCap panel, but um, which is going to happen, and we have a coupon code that I'll put in the notes. But um, oh, that's great. It's so freaking cool to see an exchange not make the trader the center of its business. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Can I also just like reinforce how culture is so important in companies? And you can hear it, right? Like Gene and Michelle are people that you would want to do business with. Like they they're just like super brilliant straight shooters. And uh, you know, I just have so much faith and trust in those that team, you know, all together. So and it's like um, the Silicon Valley mega startup, right? I mean, they t- they've taken like squillions of dollars in funding. Um, you know, like I think it's like 70 million bucks in funding or something like that. Um, and yet everyone who works there is like super humble and chill. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think you're right. There's been quite a large fundraise that has occurred. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know what I'm allowed to say and not say. But the money is being invested in good things. So, so um, But I think we got permission uh, from, from the president of the LTSC to sell LTSC t-shirts on our website. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that, we, that's an irrevocable permission. Um, we're going to make yeah, some I think that's, Yeah, I think that's going uh, to be an important addition. Yeah, but it's a new revenue line. Our suite. I think it's pretty funny too. Like, imagine there's going to be a panel at some point where somebody from the long-term stock exchange is going to be sitting next to somebody from like various other stock exchanges, and the implication will heavily be that they are the short-term stock exchanges. Um, you just gotta love that brand. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like they're sitting. It's like, oh, here we're here from Bats, or I, you know, Intercontinental or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, beauty. <laughs> But yeah, it's, you know, it is that time. Time for Dear Ashley. Mm. Um, we are. Time also to, uh, you know, I guess, I guess I'll plug the SoCap panel in more detail. It's a crossover episode. Darren Dodson, Gene Rogers, talking about uh, rejecting racism and uh, realizing returns with us Beauty. and maybe a mystery guest uh, at SoCap October 21st, I think. October 21st, I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah. There's a... And by uh, at SoCap, we mean... In our houses, yelling into yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. You you will get to hear it uh, on this podcast. In your feed. jammies, yeah, exactly. Uh, you can be doing whatever you want. Honestly, we don't judge. No, we don't. And and the best way to buy absolution, though, in case you're worried about us judging you, is to leave a review for the podcast. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna beg. Um, <laughs> but please do it. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. Please. Um, the first, right. you know, and there we go. This is like crazy. This is not to be all like circular LTSE economy. This comes from, uh, a, I think, uh, Drew McFadzine, who's also an LTSE person on Twitter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hello, Drew. Hi, yeah. Drew. 
<laughs> the culture and uh, so and I'm sure I mispronounced his name somehow, but um, the culture and execution abilities of some Canadian pensions haven't lived up to some listeners' expectations. Some listener, I wonder which listener that is. Um, how does the Canadian model need to evolve? Yeah, it's a great question. It's it, as a Canadian myself, I'm a dual citizen. I've worked at a bunch of Canadian pension plans up to this point at AIMCO and OP Trust and elsewhere. Um, I think the Canadians are incredibly good at running the Canadian model of investment, which was an innovative model 25 years ago. Um, And so when Drew asks, how does the Canadian model need to evolve? My answer is, it needs to learn how to evolve, right? Like it needs to evolve by getting better at evolving. Like, you know, these are massive organizations now in some cases with close to 2000 employees, global offices, you know, how will they handle this new world that's coming? And in my experience in working there, they aren't very good at the real big innovations and transformations and internal disruptions. They are very good at competing with traditional asset managers and reducing cost and being efficient about generating a return. But as I've said time and time again on this freaking podcast, like innovation and efficiency run at odds to each other. Yep. They don't go together. And so if we all assume, which I do, that the world of finance will be disrupted in the next decade through the technology and data, then it's that innovation kind of component that's missing in Canada. And I know some of them are starting to work on it and taking shots at it and trying to work around the margins, but they've built such big you know, ships that turning them is going to take some time. And, and I guess it's interesting, right? Like if you have, if you're a, like, if you have an eponymous model, you know, like people go like, imagine going to Yale and be like, all right, so, you know, you've done the Yale model. Like, yeah. <laughs> like they're yeah, still doing exactly. the Yale model. It's the same Yale model, you know? No, I think, <laughs> I think that basically Yale will do the Yale model forever. Yeah, exactly. You know, like whatever like, Yale's doing is a Yale model. But then, if, but then if they're doing the Canadian model, you're like, wait, Yale gave up the Yale model and they're Canadian? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, so there's like, it's almost like the the, the Nobel curse, you know, to have your own model, right? Like, That's um, right. <laughs> yeah. But, but you know, the, as size, this, this happens, right? Like as Yale gets bigger and bigger, they won't be able to do the Yale model because yep. the Yale model is kind of premised on this idea that you can get aligned access to alpha generating alternatives managers. Well, what happens when the Yale endowment is 200 billion and all of a sudden, like there just isn't enough alpha to go be sourced, you know, from hedge funds and venture capital funds. So you see that with Norway's model shifting, um, you know, GPIF's model shifting, like as you get to a different scale, your model needs to change. So that makes sense. Or I mean, hopefully by the time it makes that order of magnitude growth, it'll be uh, taxed as a hedge fund and not a university. Uh, <laughs> Did uh, I hear you say hopefully? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like at a certain point, you know, like the. <laughs> um, ah, true. The so here, the next question is: We've gotten used to periodic news stories that dissect the returns of various pension plans and subsequent hot takes on Twitter. 
like, you know, this is the the mm. laundry list of like, you know, this pension up from that pension, you know, this pension did terrible and everyone associated with it should feel bad. Um, what's the constructive way to interpret those news, those news stories? Constructive would be to tweet them out with a caveat that says, why are we talking about single year performance? <laughs> mm. um, you know, like I always want to razz my friend, Chris Aylman at Calsters when he beats CalPERS over one year and he mm. tweets it out, you know, like he literally did that. But if he loses to CalPERS, he'll say, wow, we look at the 10 year. Yeah. 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 It's a long, you have to take a long term term perspective, you know, (laughs) but like, I think what he's going after is like the culture and the rivalry. It's fun. It creates like a, yeah. Yeah. An environment of excellence. So that's cool. But, but I think it's, we want them to be long-term. Like I don't want you thinking about their one year performance. I want you to think about their five to 15 year performance. And there's a bunch of sovereign funds that have taken to just reporting um, long-term performance. Like I think GIC reports rolling 20 year, uh, wow. performance. And, and then we might ask, well, like how the hell does the public hold them accountable? Yeah. Well, um, in Singapore, I don't think that's as big of an issue as it would be if it was CalPERS or CalSTRS. So, so we have to be transparent here. Mm. And so I think then we have to have more of a culture of saying, look, yeah, understand what the short-term performance is, but let's recognize, like we talked to today, so this question is perfect, that yep. like too much of a focus on the short-term performance harms your ability to generate performance in the long run. So yeah. let's not get too caught up in the short run. The other thing that's really hard about these peer comparisons, like, hooray, we got this, and oh, you got that. Like they do this in Canada all the time. Mm. In fact, I had somebody call me today and be like, I can't say what it is, but one of the plans had, you know, is going to report really bad numbers, right? Oh, no. One of the big famous ones. Yeah. Uh, and, and they were like, heard of, first. Oh, you heard your first <laughs> A plan is going to report bad performance. Oh my gosh. Yeah, totally. Uh, <laughs> this person was giddy. This person was like giddy, you know, oh, what because a troll. I know. <laughs> and, and it's like, well, the reality is, if you look at Ontario Teachers versus Canada Pension Plan versus Hoop versus Omers, like all those Canadian plans are in the same city. They have different liability profiles, and we absolutely shouldn't compare them. Mm. They have different risk profiles. Yeah. You know? And so even though they're all sitting there as Canadian plans in Toronto, it's still not appropriate to say, oh, we beat them. When it's like, mm. yeah, well, teachers you know, liability profiles so mature that they are moving into a completely different portfolio construction than a Canada pension plan would or a PSP would. So it's not appropriate, but we still do it because it's fun to do. And it, it has that cultural angle that I think Chris Aylman is using when he's like, Mm. yay, we beat CalPERS. Um, but like the endowments do it. The endowments even have like their bonuses tied. They have, yeah. And they have their bonuses tied to certain components of the league table. Like being top quintile? Oh, yeah. Like oh if you work in an endowment, I think, I don't know if they still have it, but I know that like for a while, um, you would get, you would max your bonus if you were like in the top 10, you know, percentile of endowments. So I talk about short-termism. Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's a great image problem for finance to have, right? Here are the long-term investors and they're out here like measuring. I mean, like, I don't even think most mutual funds like, you know, snipe at each other over performance to the degree that endowments and pensions sometimes yeah. do. <laughs> like you don't hear, you don't see like the Royce value funds out here like owning T. Rowe Price over uh, <laughs> you yeah, know, I know. last I year's know. performance, uh, like subtweeting each other. Um, all right. Uh, the last question for this week, um, the CME and the NASDAQ, are launching a water a water futures contract. Wow, are really you, new markets. New markets is the, yeah. It's, is I mean, it's the market. It's the market yeah. episode. <laughs> <laughs> what have we done? I mean, it's like wow, we're like wow. stumbling on the themes. This is pretty cool. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> this, is, this is good. Good selection of questions here. But like, but like, I mean, investments in water though. It seems like the kind of thing that like you know, in we live in a dystopia. It should totally pay I off. Know. You know. But like, I, I feel like it's been a loser. Like, how have these investments sort of paid off in the past? Uh, it's mixed. I, I mean, yeah. what I love about this idea, like water futures is kind of like clean air futures. You know, I, I was like, well, isn't this kind of like carbon? It's not quite like carbon, mm. you know, like, but it is like clean air or water or yep. whatever, you know, like, and I'll say like over the last little while, like I would have paid, you know, I would have like <laughs> tried to hedge that clean air risk. It's been awful here with smoke, but like it, all of these water rights deals really were hot between yeah, you know, I'd say two fifteen, twenty fifteen, and twenty eighteen when like our drought here was the worst I've seen it in my adult yeah. life or even in you know, my entire time in California. And so I was, I saw all these deals where people were like, oh, we get these water rights and like you can sell them to you know the almond farmers or you know and and i think this is just kind of the codification this cme and nasdaq water futures thing is the kind of codification of what we were seeing back then when that was kind of like otc you know swaps type type vibe where like people were like well i need water and i'm worried about the risk and so let's create a swap there's a lot of people that will buy this you know there's a lot of people that will use this for hedging that actually need water as an input and had no good way of managing the risk that that input price goes through the roof or it literally disappears. Um, and so I think there's a lot of businesses that will thrive from this as far as like speculators coming back to the beginning of the podcast. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't know how this will play as like as an instrument for hedge funds to trade and play around or yeah. like active investors to make bets on water it strikes me that this kind of thing could be a bet on climate change. It, yeah, um, it seems like a like a hedge kind of for like all sorts of climate related risk, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, access to water, droughts, flood, rain, like these are all climate related scenarios. And so this, you know, this could be a pretty interesting way for investors to hedge climate risk. Um I just, you know, I'm not quite what are the longest futures contracts? I know what we didn't talk about it beforehand, but I, I is I'm there pretty- is there a di- like one I, year, I think on something like um, eat like Nat Gas, which is pretty uh, that like, yeah. it was super liquid. Um, I, I think they go up five years. I'm not sure if they go out longer than okay. that. Um, well, five years would be enough to like, yeah, you know, de risk some stuff. You know, if like you were an ag and you were yeah. real worried about having access to water, <laughs> yeah, you could you could really manage the risk effectively. So that's kind of exciting, you know. Yeah. Like, um, it's kind of cool too, like because with with natural gas, like the the you, what you're hedging is like a you know a certain quantity of natural gas for delivery at the Henry Hub in Louisiana. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, and so like, I wonder where the water crossroads of the world will be. Oh, <laughs> well, it's in California though, right? Is it, is it, it must California be. water? No, no but uh, I think this, this contract for some reason, when I was reading about it, I thought it was linked to California water, but maybe not. Maybe it's just water in generally. Yeah, I exactly. I mean, because it's like, I mean, water is not exactly easy to ship. So like, it, it's it's the ultimate, like, maybe it'll wind up being like electricity markets where they're just like super crazy and, and hyper local. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Who's going to take delivery of like, you know, the swimming pool size water? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, it, it would be, I, I mean, if we were to really go to the next level of dystopia, we would have oil tankers sitting full of water in the middle of the ocean waiting for water prices to rise. <laughs> well, people, <laughs> well, well, people were like dying of drought oh. on, on the mainland. Uh, totally. Oh man! I think the price. Is, I think it's going to get more valuable. Let's prevent why, people from drinking it. Why does my brain work this way? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. I hear it's it's actually the lizard brain. It's literally called the lizard part of the brain that makes you think that way. Um, yeah, I, I talked to my son about his lizard brain almost on the daily. Oh, <laughs> he's a sweetheart. But he does get lizard braid sometimes. Aww. Well, he'll get better, I hope. Uh, yeah. Um, and I hope I hope for all of you out there suffering from lizard brain. Um, I, I hope that you, you know, I don't know, get you go help. long water, you go <laughs> long water, go long water. And, and, you know, may our love be enough to comfort you in your lizardness. Because we do love you. Bye. Bye. Now make it rain on them.